Murphy gives such an affable twist to each poetic slander and crass comment that it's nearly impossible not to root for his Rudy, regardless of how many four-letter words fly. That's from Matt Ward of Cinematic Considerations, and he's talking about Dolomite Is My Name. Welcome back, Eddie Murphy. Terrific new movie. It's available on Netflix. Had the uh, pleasure of watching it last night, as did Joe. So both of us are locked into that. We've also got a great guest today, Shea Serrano. His book is called Movies and Other Things, a collection of questions asked, answered, illustrated. You know his stuff from The Ringer. He's really, really funny, and his book is about as original a book as I've read when it comes to movies. He goes all over the map here with questions that he's always wanted to answer, like, do you think this movie villain would be a good hang? Who's in the perfect heist movie? Um, Who gets it worse than Kill Bill? Were the Jurassic Park Raptors just misunderstood? It's hysterical, and it's a great 20-plus-minute conversation with him, so uh, make sure you check that out. Um, as always, please do give us some love on Apple Podcasts. Please do subscribe, rate, and review. That's how we keep things rolling, so go ahead and give us a five-star review. I rank my movies out of four Maple Leafs, but if you can go out of five stars and leave a comment as well, my understanding is that's what uh, helps us keep rolling. As a matter of fact, let's read a couple of these right now. Uh, this is from Doc Lou, Iowa. Listen to the Big Picture Pod on Scorsese. Yes, my man Dan Stanzik alerted me to that. Loving Cinephile and GM Shuffle. Uh, okay, oh, this guy's upset about me. Uh, less than few. Love this podcast. A little annoyed by your ripping of superhero films. Recently based on his hero's definition of cinema. Considering Marty didn't even watch them all, you can clump a superhero movie into a trash pile with regards to filmmaking because of the content. Come on, be a little less biased. Go talk to Chris Nolan, his Dark Knight trilogy. Otherwise, love this podcast. Try to reserve the severe rants. All right, thank you for commenting. By the way, Scorsese wrote an article in the New York Times. I have not read it yet, but apparently it says in there, you know, I said Marvel movies are not cinema. Here's what I meant. So I have not even read it yet. I can't wait to read it. I'm sure he goes uh, further in depth into what he said and uh, hope it doesn't backtrack. Here's uh, Terrence84. Your reviews are the best part about the podcast. Your perspective, your candor, attention to detail are second to none. Would love to hear more movies reviewed per episode. This could be Mark Simon here. The Bada Binge is great. Please do Breaking Bad next. We've only got three more episodes of Bada Binge. That's right. So maybe Breaking Bad, we will do next. Oh, and your Scorsese man crush is somewhat off-putting. Right, that's fair. Um, Last one here from Matt Searles. Cinephile Podcast has guided me from being a movie enthusiast into a true cinephile. As a fan of Scorsese, Chris Nolan, and sports, this podcast is obviously right up my alley, playing to my strengths. R.I.P. Dan the Man Stanzik. Adnan is incredibly entertaining and insightful. He can speak faster than I can think. I love how Joe has been increasingly getting more airtime. He always has very thoughtful opinions. I think the listeners would love a segment owned by Joe. Keep it up, Adnan. Yes, Joe, I did not know your burner account was Matt Searles. Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. It's about time that someone found out. Everyone follow me on on Twitter account, Adnan Searles. <laughs> and Marcus-James, hey, Adnan, great podcast and movie reviews. Can you please let listeners know in the episode description of the review will be include spoilers or be spoiler free? I think that will help add more listeners. Okay, well, if anyone's curious, we do, we do not have spoilers. If I, if I say it, I will tell you here's a spoiler. But I thought, especially in the case of The Irishman, I did not give away any plot development. So, yes, I give my reviews spoiler-free. That's the way we like to do things here. Um, thanks again to all those comments here. Also got one here from Two Weeks with Pay. I just like the fact that was his heading. Enthusiasm still continues to percolate through my AirPods. Constant passion for cinema. Bought a binge. You won't be disappointed. All right, so thank you so much for all those comments. Let's dive into the movies, then we'll do some news, and then we'll get to Shea, because Shea is fabulous. Also, Mount Rushmore, in honor of The Lighthouse, which we reviewed last time, it's movies set in one locale. So The Lighthouse obviously takes place just with The Lighthouse, and so we're going to look at a Mount Rushmore of movies there. As I mentioned, The Bada Binge, we're now down to the final three weeks of The Bada Binge, and then I believe we were going to then try to tackle the greatness that is Breaking Bad. Let's first talk about Dolomite Is My Name, though. As I said, welcome back, Eddie Murphy. It's got 97% right now on Rotten Tomatoes. It's terrific. Murphy, I think, always thrives in situations like this where he's playing a real person. It's a biopic. It's about a floundering comedian named Rudy Ray Moore, who wasn't really making things happen with his stand-up until he meets a street derelict who speaks in rhyme and often very profane, and realizes, you know what, maybe this could be my, my ticket to success. So he assumes an alter ego of a guy named Dolomite, who dresses like a pimp, who talks in rhyme, who drops a lot of mother effers, and all of a sudden he finds that he seems to get good reception from the audiences. People think this character is funny. And it's exactly what that review said that I read off the top, that it's a real credit to Eddie Murphy, because most guys, 
you know, when using this kind of language, it would seem off-putting. But because of Eddie with his inimitable smile and his trademark delivery, you just, you love the guy because he's just so funny because it's Eddie Murphy. It's Eddie Murphy doing Ruby Ray Moore. And he's lost none of his charisma over time. And, and it's just so nice to see him back with a movie that's worthy of him. You know, the material is really strong because you're basing it on a true story. And I think a, a big part of that is, too, is the guys who wrote it are the guys who wrote Ed Wood. Uh, those guys are both great. Scott Alexander and Larry Karashevsky, I believe are the names off the top of my head. But those guys are awesome. As soon as I saw they wrote the script, I said, okay, this is going to be a good movie. Then I see it's directed by Craig Brewer. He's pretty good. And then obviously Eddie Murphy is, is holding it all together. But after he assumes a persona of Dolomite, you know, he starts to perform a little bit, but realizes the next, the next true venture is to make a movie. He wants to make a Dolomite movie. And so then the movie goes into, you know, how you get the, the funding for it and how do you cast it? And Keegan-Michael Key is one of the actors. And, and Wesley Snipes is hysterical. One might say even scene-stealing, playing a serious actor who was with John Cassavetes in Rosemary's Baby. And now they're asking him to, you know, bequeath himself in this movie, which is beneath him. But he says, okay, I'll do it. After Murphy cleverly says, well, why don't you direct it? So he's the actor directed it as well. But the way Snipes plays the character, he's just so pompous. Uh, it's really funny and really good to see him back on the big screen with Eddie Murphy. In addition to that, you've got Craig Robinson, who's always good. You know, Snoop Dogg, small role. Chris Rock plays a DJ. So it's an excellent cast of comedians um, of Eddie Murphy's era and maybe even a little bit more recently, obviously, with a guy like Keegan-Michael Key. But the middle section to me is the most entertaining and the most funny. You know, that's where it's the actual filming of the movie. And so I mentioned those writers. They did Ed Wood. That's so the best parts of Ed Wood is when they're actually filming the movie. Similarly, the best part of Dolomite is my name is when they're filming those scenes. Because, you know, stories about cash-strapped productions trying to wring together whatever they can with multiple takes and doing so on the cheap. I mean, that never gets old. Look at The Disaster Artist, another great movie about a guy making a bad movie. This time it's about a guy making a bad black exploitation movie. Although, how could it be bad? Because Dolomite was a huge success and made millions of dollars. It clearly connected with people even if it was a rather ramshackle production. Um, so that section to me is really funny and really well done. And then you see where the story is going. Uh, another credit to Craig Brewer is the fact in the end credits, he shows the actual Dolomite movie. I always love that. They did that in The Disaster Artist as well, because you can say, okay, how closely did this rendition match up what actually happened, what's actually on celluloid? And it's uncanny, not only in the case of The Disaster Artist, but also in Dolomite is my name, when you see the actual actor, you know, doing all those famous lines and those scenes. I mean, that was really fun to be able to see those reenacted once you see what the real article looked like. So I'm going to give Dolomite as my name, Three Maple Leafs. Like I said, it's Eddie Murphy back doing what he does, which is entertaining and charismatic and maybe an outside chance at a Best Actor nomination. A really enjoyable film, and it's very accessible because it's available on Netflix. Joe, what did you think? And then I thought it was inappropriate. I thought it was vulgar. And I thought it was so fun at the same time. It was, I, right. it was good. It was a real testament to uh, Eddie Murphy. He hasn't lost any star power and can carry a whole movie. Um, still, I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. And he has more movies coming down the pipeline. But I thought from start to finish, it was just a fun ride. And you're right. The best part is when they're actually making the movie and everything that they're running into. Yeah, those sequences are always the best. How good was Wesley Snipes in the movie? Oh, he was so good. I it took it honestly took me a few scenes to realize that that was Wesley Snipes, and it wasn't until they started the movie actually making it that I was like, "Oh, that's Wesley Snipes." The whole cast is is great. Craig Robinson too. That's actually him singing on stage as well. Yeah, you're right. He's definitely got some talent there. Another good review here from Ann Hornaday, who's a great critic of Washington Post. We'll get her on at some point. Filthy and affectionate, low down and fizzily high spirited. Dolomite is my name pays homage to the business of show at its most disreputable and delectably entertaining. Also, Joe Morgenstern of the Wall Street Journal said, In Dolomite is my name, Eddie Murphy takes a good idea and runs with it, soars with it, and turns it into a great, if wildly erratic, twofer tribute. Definitely check it out. Once again, it's available on Netflix. We'll get to Shay in just a second. A couple of entertainment news to pass along. Sony Pictures' highly anticipated sequel to 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse will arrive April 8th, 2022 company tweeting out the announcement never been a more important time for miles morales and the spider-man future is sony pictures representing a future for the character within the larger sony spider-man universe sony and disney are working on a third peter parker starring spider-man movie one that stars tom holland and features spider-man within the marvel cinematic universe having a beloved animated franchise running morales is key to preparing for a world in that holland's peter parker may not exist following the next film. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, largely regarded as one of the best Spider-Man movies of all time, and a visionary take on the superhero genre, also a worthy Oscar. 
for Best Animated Picture earlier this year. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse was great, Joe. I look forward to the sequel. Me too. I, I, I can't wait to be two years older than I already am right now and just for the movie to come out, even if it means that my need's a little worse than it is now. I just want to see the sequel. Exactly. Really well done. HBO is more Game of Thrones in the pipeline, but the prequel written by Jane Goldman starring Naomi Watts is no longer happening. Showrunner Goldman has been emailing the cast and crew of the project to tell them that the pilot is dead. Development has not been confirmed by HBO. Prequel, by the way, taking place thousands of years before the wars, romances, and dragons that Amelia Clark and Kit Harington led Game of Thrones. It was picked among several Game of Thrones prequel scripts that have been commissioned by HBO, while the pilot carrying heavy corporate expectations was in editing. HBO in September gave an unofficial pilot green light to a second prequel project from Martin and Ryan Condal, which is set 300 years before the events in Game of Thrones. So I guess we're getting a Game of Thrones prequel, Joe. It's just not the one we thought we were going to get. Right, right. And I'll say as a Game of Thrones fan, I will be there for whatever prequel comes down the pipeline. But I have to ask you, I know you didn't watch Game of Thrones, but will you watch the first episode of whatever prequels come out? No, I just think, you know what, I, the deeper appreciation for it would be if you'd seen the original. It would be like watching Better Call Saul, not having seen Breaking Bad. I mean, I think you could do it, but you still can't appreciate as much as you could if you'd seen the original. Fair, that's fair. I understand that. All right, time now to get to our special guest. He's great. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. A real pleasure to bring in Shay Serrano, the author of the new book, Movies and Other Things, a collection of questions asked, answered, illustrated. You got to check it out. It is absolutely hysterical. There are so many people out there who love movies, but nobody loves movies quite like Shay because his tastes go all over the place. And this is what we're going to do, Shay. The book is so original and so unique. Rather than give you the generic, how did you come up with this idea? And, oh, God, I love that illustration of Robert De Niro as Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society. I'm just going to literally read to you my favorite sections, which I've bookmarked, and then you can just expand and elaborate. <laughs> Sound good? Okay. All right. So I love gangster movies. So that was my favorite chapter. So for the uninitiated, what this is amazing that Shea was able to do this. He did the top 30 gangster moments. Now he does have a very important Robert De Niro role because he mentions the fact De Niro is the greatest gangster movie actor of all time. So, I mean, obviously you just have De Niro over and over. There's a Godfather rule. There's a heat rule, et cetera. But bottom line is this number 29, you picked out the forget about it scene from Donnie Brasco. Which is a hilarious scene. First off, I like this point, because Paul Giamatti is one of my favorite actors. One of the technicians is played by Paul Giamatti. Giamatti had three unnamed roles in 1997. He was an FBI technician in Donnie Brasco, a bellman in My Best Friend's Wedding, and a hotel clerk in The Break. It was a big unnamed year for him. But as you point out, this whole scene where I'm sure everybody has seen Donnie Brasco, if you haven't, shame on you. But they ask him, what does forget about it mean? So Johnny Depp starts explaining, you know, Raquel Welch is one great piece of, you know, forget about it. If you disagree, like a Lincoln is better than a Cadillac, forget about it. And this is the point you make, Shay, which is the funniest part of this entire exchange. I don't understand how the two guys you have whose job is to parse the recordings Brasco is bringing in can't on their own figure out what forget about it means. Remember that one scene in the TV show The Wire when Caroline is listening to the phone calls via wiretap and is translating all the slang that's being used? The FBI should have hired her for the Brasco case. That would have been done in six weeks. Seriously, how could these guys not figure out what forget about it means? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that. I didn't even catch up on that until like I rewatched it for the fourth or fifth time. I also love Paul Giamatti. So what I was doing is there's a TV show called Billions. Do you watch Billions? I don't, but I watched I watched the first few seasons just for Giamatti. Okay, so that's what like I just started watching the show because I love Paul Giamatti. I was in like a, in the middle of a Paul Giamatti phase, and I so I was rewatching all of his movies, and that's how I noticed that uh, he had those three three roles where he didn't have names. He was just like these bit 
characters. But yeah, you're, I'm watching the movie and I'm now I'm only paying attention to Paul Giamatti in this one part. And he's, of course, a brilliant actor in the scene. But it just I just couldn't get past why he didn't know what Forget About It meant. If that's your whole job is to like listen to what these words mean. <laughs> and even, I mean, the punchline is when he actually says it. Depp explains it. And then Giamatti says it in a very cartoonish way. Forget about it. It's so good. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. <laughs> Skipping ahead now to page 88. This is, uh, again, I, I can't describe these things unless you've read the book, but I'll do my best. Uh, basically, Shea is discussing who's in the Regina George circle of friends. So we're looking at high school friends who would be in her circle. She's the character from Mean Girls. This is an excerpt I'm going to read mm. here. Biff Tannen from 1985's Back to the Future which is one of my favorite movies. He's too oafish to ever even exist in Regina's orbit, obviously, so that's one reason he's not getting a seat. A larger problem for him here, though, is that he tried to rape a classmate in front of his friends and also in front of her date. I don't want to put him in anyone's circle of friends unless we're talking about a circle of friends in prison. It was always strange to me that George McFly, Marty McFly's father, and the guy who punched out Biff when he was sexually assaulting Lorraine chose to hire Biff later to work for him when they were all adults. Yeah. That wasn't okay. So you watch all these movies when you're younger, and you're just like, "All right, cool." I'd like this is a thing that's happening, and then you get older, and you watch them. You're like, "Wait a minute!" <laughs> like that's a tough, that's a tough look for 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 Biff there. Um, that you're just gonna, and everybody else is who's like just sort of cheering it along, like, "Oh, Biff, look at Biff about to rape another woman." Like <laughs> he's a high school student. What what the hell is happening right now? That one that was like, uh, yeah, that was tough. And like you said, the fact that why would the then hire why is Crispin Glover hiring him later? He knows what he did. Why would you why would you hire the guy? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're I don't know what you're thinking in that moment. Like you gotta just if you're, if you're not gonna report this to the police, certainly the next step underneath that should not be to hire the guy for a thing. <laughs> you should just no thank you. Okay, this chapter is gonna do great with any audience. Which kills are in the action movie Kills Hall of Fame? I'm going to point out, because again, as I've established, you and I are both big Paul Giamatti fans, which is why I love the movie Shoot 'Em Up, just because Giamatti's in there just mm-hmm. chewing scenery. But you mentioned this specific scene when Clive Owen kills a guy with a carrot during an opening of 2007 yeah. Shoot 'Em Up. He said, there's a scene where the first kill of which is where Clive stops a guy from beating a woman, shoves a carrot into his mouth, then palm strikes it out of the back of his head. And guess what he says to the guy's dead dead face immediately after i'll tell you what he says he says eat your vegetables yes good old clive owen a remarkable run for clive owen in the like mid to late 2000s just just an incredibly cool person and shoot him up like not not enough people watch this movie but it was straight up just like let's have clive owen kill 100 people in an hour and a half and and I love it. I just love, I love how silly it is. I love how like seriously the, the actors take it, but without taking themselves seriously. It's just, it's a great deal of fun, that movie. Oh yeah. And you get Monica Bellucci too. So it's phenomenal. Next chapter excerpt. Do you think this movie villain would be a good hang? And you discuss, we got Alonzo from Training Day. There's lots of great villains here. But the best one I like here is you're talking about the Jokers. And so you're saying, well, listen, Heath Ledger's Joker is the last place finisher here. He goes, you'd say something like, hey, you want to get some Chinese? Watch a few episodes of The Office. And he'd respond with something like, what about if instead of what we blow up a hospital and steal a police car? And you'd respond with something like, no, that definitely (laughs) seems like less fun. Perhaps as a compromise, we can watch Scrubs. It's at least set in a hospital. And he'd respond with something like, how about this? Let's cut open a man's gut and sew a cell phone into him. (laughs) Jared Leto's Joker is a second place finisher because he seems a little less likely to kill you than Ledger's Joker. But here's your best point. Jack Nicholson's Joker is the first place finisher. He's the one Joker who seemed to actively be having the most amount of fun. And so that's the one key part here because fun is good. But more important than that, he's the one who seems the most reasonable. And I know that's a weird thing to say about a man who barbecued a man's flesh off his bones with a hand buzzer, but considering the company, it makes sense. Yes, I really like uh, the Joker as a movie character. So in that chat, I'm realizing right now as you're reading like sections of the book, how insane all of this sounds to anybody who's not like looked at it. It doesn't make any, it sounds like the dumbest, most ridiculous thing in the world. And probably it is. But no, it doesn't. It, point, sounds, really, it sounds like an yeah, inspired I, work of, of uh, <laughs> nonfiction. <laughs> I really, I really like Joker, and uh, and yeah, that chapter was just like uh, I stole this idea from my youngest son. I was researching Hannibal Lecter for a different thing, 
and I was explaining to him what he does, and the the boy, he was like five maybe at the time, he was like, oh, I would not want to be friends with Hannibal Lecter. And uh, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to do this for a whole chapter. Like, which of these people would be the most fun to hang out with? Which would make for the best friend? And But yeah, of all the Jokers, Jack Nicholson's Joker is going to be the one guy that, like, he would make you the least uncomfortable out of everybody, is what it boils down to. Even when we saw the new, like, the new Joaquin Phoenix Joker, this book was done before that movie came out, but I would still prefer Jack Nicholson over, over Joaquin Phoenix's Joker to oh, hang yeah. out with. Oh, yeah. I mean, Joaquin is way too depressive to hang out with. I mean, that guy's just miserable. Uh, yeah. I also love this. What are the best nine things that Robert De Niro taught us? And, and the one, they hear that, when, one that comes to mind immediately is the first one you quoted, which is when he taught everyone to never let yourself get attached to anything you're not willing to walk out on 30 yeah. seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner and heat. But here's an underrated one. When he taught everyone not to bet on the Eagles in Silver Linings Playbook, and when he taught everyone, that if you, if, <laughs> and when he taught everyone that if you care too much about the San Francisco Giants, you'll die in the fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, you know Robert De Niro teaching a teaching a lot of lessons. That was actually so a thing that kept happening in the book was I would I would have what I thought was a good idea for a chapter, and I would start working on the chapter, and then I would realize it wasn't that good of an idea. It's more of just like this would probably have been a better tweet or a funny joke. That's what happened with that Robert De Niro list that you're mentioning. That was originally its own chapter, and it was like 3,000 words long. And rereading it, it was like, mm, this. I don't know that this works as like a full chapter, but as just an aside for a thing, it's a fun thing to do. Uh, the most inspired chapter, and seriously, you can be as self-deprecating as you want, but this is brilliant. This is the one that I think you submit to whoever you have to submit to to win a Pulitzer what happened at the Michael Myers press conference? Michael Myers from Halloween, <laughs> okay. as if he's an NBA player answering NBA questions. This is incredible. I, I, I don't even, I can't do it justice unless people read the entire thing. But this part in particular, reporter two, defense, Michael, sorry, the victims. I take what the victims give me. Reporter three, what is it that you're looking for the victims to give you? Michael, they're necks mostly. Big fan of necks, choking them, snapping them, cutting them open. <laughs> Reporter, that's actually kind of what I wanted to ask about, Mike. There's been a lot of talk recently about how your attack is a little, I don't know, one-dimensional. I mean, this whole chapter is insane. How did you come up with this idea? I mean, you have it in the footnotes, but explain to the audience who haven't read the book. It's hilarious. Um, okay, so similar to The Joker, I really like... Michael Myers is my favorite movie monster, my favorite like horror movie creation. And Michael Myers' whole thing is that he just never talks. Like, not ever. In any of the movies that have come out, he has never said one single word. And it makes more, it, it's more interesting to me than like Jason Voorhees is another character who never talks, but Jason Voorhees is straight up like an actual monster. Michael Myers is billed as just like a human. And, uh, and so we went, my wife and I went and saw the new Halloween movie, uh, which was incredible. And we were, we went and saw that. We came home and I was just sort of laying there thinking about Michael Myers in bed. And I was trying to figure out how I could write about him in an interesting way. And, I was like, well, it would be really funny to me if I like got to have a conversation with Michael Myers and if he was like actually talking. Do you remember the Arsenio Hall show? Did you watch that when you were a kid? Sure, case? yeah. I mean, the the whoop whoop and all the rest of it, yeah. Okay. So there was a, there's like a, an episode where Arsenio Hall interviews Jason Voorhees. Jason has a new movie coming out. <laughs> and Jason comes out and he like has an interview with Arsenio but he just he never talks. He's like in character the whole time. He's just looking at Arsenio, and the whole bit is like on Arsenio to like make everybody laugh and be uncomfortable. And it's, it, he does a great job. And I was like, man, I w I was really like watching that when I was a kid, hoping to hear Jason talk finally. So this is just like uh, I got to do that. I got to like what would be funny to me is if Michael Myers was not only talking, but but it's like when he finally did talk, he was very earnest. And just like not a dark person <laughs> at all. Like he was just like straight up talking to you about killing the same way basketball players talk about a basketball game. So I just wanted to do that for like 3000 words. And that's the, that's the one chapter people ask me about the most, which is really like my favorite thing in the world. Yeah, dude, it's the most inspired. Like I said, it's the most creative, the most original, in many ways, the funniest. Another idea, which I'm absolutely stealing for this podcast in a file, which is you go back to go the Oscars it. And you say, who wins that at the brand new Academy Awards? Now, I like what you did here because 
I agree with some of your choices, like uh, There Will Be Blood, I Adore, and you said that should have won over No Country for Old Men, which is also a great movie, but I'm with you. There Will Be Blood is, is incredible. But your idea was even mm-hmm. better, Shay, because you were like, listen, romantic comedies don't get enough love here, so I'm going to try to squeeze in more of those kind of movies, or I'm going to get Speed actually nominated for Best Picture, which I raised an eyebrow at, but then you yeah. immediately correctly pointed out, listen, The Fugitive was nominated for Best Picture, so why can't Speed be nominated for Best mm-hmm. Picture? That's a great action movie. Mm-hmm. It's got good actors in it. So I think this whole concept is really good, particularly Ethan Hawke should have won an Oscar for Training Day. I love that selection. Um, I would have liked a little more love for Gangs in New York. I'm not as, uh, I'm, I know I'm one of the few, maybe people don't like it as much as I do. But I, I just love the idea you went back and redid the Oscars, but you did so, I think, in a very populist manner. Like, give Jim Carrey an Oscar for Man on the Moon. Let's go. Yeah, absolutely. I also am a big Gangs in New York fan, except for like the last 20 minutes. Like, yeah. you're going to make me watch this whole movie and I don't get to see the final fight. Like that? Ah, no, thank you. That's not cool. <laughs> let me, let me, let me, let me see him get after it. Um, but yeah, that was like a fun thing to do. So originally, the this like series, the end of the thing series, started with basketball. Basketball and other things was the first one that came out in 2017. And but it's easy. It was easier to write about basketball than to write about movies because it's easy to be like, okay, in 2019, the Toronto Raptors were the best basketball team, and we know this because they played and they won the game, and they had the most points when the buzzer went off, and that's how you decide who's the best. With movies, though, there's no, like, there's, there's no place to look and go, like, that was the number one best thing of the year, or this was the most valuable player or whatever. Like, that, that doesn't exist for movies. Everything is, is subjective. So, yeah, well, we should take advantage of that and go back and reassign. Because you can't go back and reassign NBA championships. It just doesn't work. But you can... They're like, actually, y'all got this one wrong. And let me tell you why Armageddon should have been celebrated more than it was or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and again, I love the fact you make the book as open to everybody as possible. Anybody who thinks, oh, movie people are snobs. Listen, there's an entire chapter dedicated uh, to Dominic Toretto here, the, your boy from uh, Fast and the Furious. So trust yeah, me, his win-loss record guy. is dissected. <laughs> one other... Yeah, yeah. This, this isn't even a quibble. This is actually a, an astute move you made, which just offends me personally, because as a lover of old movies, I'm often mocked for bringing <laughs> up, you know, Robert Mitchum in conversations and, you know, Brando and On the Waterfront. And you openly, like in the first couple of pages, you're like, hey, by the way, we're not doing any old movies here, because when was the last time somebody said to you, hey, how about Tony Curtis and Some Like It Hot? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and you know, it's interesting to me, or what I, what I what I've enjoyed the most uh, about this whole process is people who like old movies really, really like old movies. They like, and they go hard for them. They they celebrate yes. them. They want to talk about them, and uh, I like that. I like when, like when I I did an interview and uh, I, I talked specifically about about this, and it was like, ah, you know, those movies are. Well, if I'm going to pick a movie to watch, I'm not going to pick something that came out in 1943. Like I don't, I just, I'm sorry, I just don't, don't care. But people who would pick that movie go nuts, and they like love these movies so much. And that to me is always like that's the best part of any of this sort of pop culture writing or or criticism or or any of that is like you've got one team over here who's gonna who's going to celebrate a certain type of movies. And then you've got another team on the other side who's like celebrating another type of movies. And it's fun to argue back and forth. I love the Fast and the Furious. I'm going to defend the Fast and the Furious very vehemently. <laughs> I would anticipate uh, people who don't love the Fast and the Furious but love something else. Like I need for them to defend their stuff too because that just makes everything feel more lively and more interesting. And it's just, it's just more fun when people are defending the stuff that they like. And that's what I wanted to do in the book. I wanted to talk about the stuff that I like and here you go. This is why I liked it. And like, you know, you could talk about your stuff in, in your book, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's everyone gets their own chapter if they want to do their own thing. Uh, on a poignant note, Shay, I was really touched by the section you wrote about a Bronx tale because you said, hey, listen, maybe I'm just into this because I'm from San Antonio and my dad's a bus driver. And maybe being Mexican, being a minority, being an outcast, maybe that's something that I can relate to with this movie, but a Bronx tale and coming of age. And then you put in the footnote, well, you know, this is too deep. I don't really want to get into this. But I, I do think that what you're touching on is a greater issue there, which is that movies are always personal to all of us. And particularly, you know, the most... Yeah. The movies that are most meaningful, sometimes you can't even articulate. I give you credit. You at least could articulate. So, well, listen, my dad's a bus driver, and this is about a bus driver. And, you know, I like the coming-of-age story and whatever. But oftentimes, I can't even explain it. I just go, listen, I just love Taxi Driver. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I just, I don't, no, I don't drive a cab. No, I'm not from 1976 New York. I just, I just, 
You know, I'm not a vigilante. Yeah. I'm not going to shave my head in a mohawk. But I, I just, I love that movie. It speaks to me. I, there's value in it, and you know, it's a personal connection. So I, I, w- I just want to ask you specifically about a Bronx Tale. How good do you think De Niro was as far as playing a guy who, as you said, is your own dad, is a bus driver who takes pride in his job and who's good at his job? I thought he, I thought he was pitch perfect in that movie. So many times we watched De Niro be like Jimmy Conway or whatever, and there's this like he's a dangerous character he's a dangerous actor and we finally get this movie where like he doesn't he's not being that dangerous like gangster actor but also it's not like something silly like fucking like freaking sorry um like the rocky and bullwinkle movie or whatever like there's like, <laughs> right. like he's doing he's doing a very serious role but he's playing this sort of noble character and and i just i just love it yeah i watched that movie and i saw so much of my dad in him that I couldn't help but fall in love with the movie in general, specifically with, with De Niro's performance. I just, it just, it meant a, a great, great deal to me. But yeah, that's what like any of these movies that we're, that we're talking about, that we're celebrating, that we're liking, uh, inevitably you're going to watch these things and you're going to care about them because something, and it, it, will, it will touch something inside of your, of your chest. I feel the same way about like Selena that a lot of people feel about, Casablanca or whatever like you watch that movie and you felt a personal connection to it for whatever reason I watched Selena a movie about a Mexican-American who was like straddling the line between trying to figure out where she belongs in the world and there's like this great scene in there with Edward James Olmos and he's explaining what it means to be Mexican-American and how you have to be more Mexican than the Mexicans and more American than the Americans and like it's a very exhausting way to exist but that's just what your existence looks like and like I can watch that movie and I know exactly what he's talking about and exactly what it feels like. And you could watch that movie and be like, oh, like, I kind of get it or it might connect in a different way. But we're seeing it through different eyeballs, so we're getting different different feelings about it. And I don't know. That's just cool to me. Uh, the, my favorite part when you're talking about movies that are impactful to Mexicans or Mexican-Americans is La Bamba, every scene that Bob is in, which I couldn't agree more. Isai Morales is unbelievable in that movie. Yeah, Isai is, Isai is the man, and and Bob, which is, which is Richie's brother in the movie, <laughs> yeah. is just so everything he says is funny and interesting and compelling, and like he's kind of a scumbag. Which <laughs> sure, you get to be you get to be that sometimes, and it's just it's fun to watch him be be that character. It's fun to watch him just talk about being alive because that's another thing that that we don't get enough of in these movies like in that in that particular movie bob's character he never like sits down and has a conversation with his family about like what it's like to be mexican or whatever because mexicans don't do i've never had that conversation with my family like around the dinner table that's not what we do it's not what we talk about uh and so it's cool to watch somebody just like be be what they are and live whatever life they're living and like bob is great bob is freaking great yeah, when he's on the drums, oh boy, I mean, he's fantastic. Uh, last one for you. Yeah. <laughs> Barack Obama named Basketball and Other Things one of his favorite books of the year. I, mean, I know you're a humble guy. You're self-deprecating. I've read enough of your stuff with The Ringer. I've read the book. I can tell the way you come across. But seriously, dude, Obama loves your stuff. <laughs> yeah, that was that was pretty intense when that happened. That was like the first thing that I thought about was like, oh, did I write anything about Obama in the book? And I did. <laughs> Briefly, like he's in like a little chart, but it was a ni- it was nice, and I was like, all right, cool, we're safe there. I'm gonna worry about like the Secret Service showing up. And then like the next thing that I thought about was like, oh man, I made like a joke about JJ Reddick's penis in this book, and Barack Obama read it, and like <laughs> this is this is wild to me. I was wondering, so usually, so what happens is you put a book out, and like it will, whatever like level of success or non-success it hits. All you want is for your next book to like do a little bit better, be a little bit better. And I was really nervous with the movie book because the basketball one was a bestseller. So the movie one has to be a bestseller. The basketball one, whatever, President Barack Obama like said a nice thing about it. Like who can say a nice thing about the movie book that's going to feel equally impactful or more impactful? I was really scared that something was like that was never going to happen again. And then like a couple of days after the book came out, friggin' The Rock tweeted about the book. And I was like, yes, that's a perfect pick. I feel so good right now. The Rock tweeted about the book. This is like the one guy you can put in the conversation with Barack Obama 
we're good now. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And there's the chap- chapter three is, is this movie better, the same, or worse with The Rock in it? Uh, other chapters, I want people to buy this book. It's got something for everybody. Which movie had the more intense opening, Face Off or Finding Nemo? When did you know Booksmart was, <laughs> when did you know Booksmart was special? I'm glad you included that. Terrific movie came out earlier this year. Hopefully it gets nominated for a bunch of Oscars. But I, that one was like hot off the presses. I'm like, all right, Shay's on this. Like, this movie came out this year, and you're right. It's really funny, and hopefully people recognize it. Was Andy Dufresne's time in prison worth it or not? Well, uh, which race was white savior the best by Kevin Costner? Um, which was better get out or social network? And when was Diane Keaton the most charming and something's got to give? It's a great, great book. I want everyone to check it out. Movies and other things by Shay Serrano. Again, I mentioned face off briefly. Seriously. How good is face off? I was so happy that you put John Woo as the greatest action movie director of all time. Oh yeah. Face off is incredible. John Woo. John Woo is like an, a legitimate director icon especially if you love action movies like this is the guy this is the guy you want to try to try to recreate if you're talking about stuff uh that you want to do in a movie but yeah face off is just so much fun face off is just such a fun movie to watch it's just very it's just ridiculous premise we're going to take two guys faces we're going to switch them and then we're just going to let them go nuts and uh yeah i mean i, I don't know you watch these movies you love these movies let me write about these movies you come read them and we're going to have a hopefully we're going to have a good time have a great time movies and other things by Shay Serrano available now you can follow him on Twitter at Shay Serrano also ShaySerrano.com I'm sure he's on Instagram as well listen great great book man I really appreciate the time and the insight and keep it rolling alright homie y'all be safe Rushmore. All right. Thanks again to Shay, man. God, that guy's funny. Very entertaining. And make sure you check out the book, Movies and Other Things. Mount Rushmore movies that take place in one location. This was inspired by The Lighthouse, which I saw last week and gave two and a half Maple Leafs to. So this time we're looking at movies set in one locale. There's lots of great options that Joe's dialed up here for me. Honorable mention of My Dinner with Andre. I mean, it's tough not to get that in there. Jerry Bruckheimer, when I had him on Cinephile, he referenced My Dinner with Andre, which is a Wallace Shawn movie. you got to see it. Another honorable mention, The Big Kahuna. Even though we now know what we know of Kevin Spacey, it is a terrific movie. Him and Danny DeVito, it's a really well-done movie. It's funny. It's charming. I thought it was dramatic. I, I love The Big Kahuna. I couldn't get it in there, though. My... Rushmore looks like this. Glengarry Glen Ross, absolute no-brainer. That's my number one with a bullet. You know that one's coming. You got real estate salesmen who are absolute thieves. And it's so brilliantly written by David Mamet. Gutter dialect, you know, just this profanity which sounds like poetry. Incredible acting. Like, you literally got all-stars all over the place with Al Pacino and Jack Lemmon, Alec Baldwin, Alan Arkin, Ed Harris, uh, Kevin Spacey, the whole uh, even in smaller roles, there's other guys. Jonathan Price is really good. I mean, the whole cast is excellent, and it's really well directed as well because you know they 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 work off of Mamet's dialogue and the rhythms with which he speaks, and so the editing is sharp and tight. And like I said, it's set within one real estate office and based on a, a Pulitzer Prize winning play. But it's an incredible movie with such great quotable dialogue. That's a, that's a testament to. Hey, you don't need a ton of plot if you have wonderful dialogue and incredible actors. You can make any story sing. Next up for me is Dog Day Afternoon. Incredible film from Sidney Lumet, primarily set, that's right, at the bank. And you've got Al Pacino, one of his best performances, playing Sonny, a bisexual robber who is robbing this bank to help fund his partner's sex change operation. If that sounds ludicrous, you've got to see the movie because it's awfully grounded in the realism and the street smarts of mid-70s New York City. Um, obviously Pacino is incredible in the movie as Sidney Lumet said he always stayed in character so if Pacino's character was sad that day well the whole day on set he'd be sad if he was supposed to be a raving maniac in the scene well all you know all day he was acting like that guy excellent chemistry with John Cazale as always the late John Cazale every movie he did was great and this is no exception Charles Durning is also marvelous playing the police chief the scenes with him and Pacino bellowing at each other they're just bursting with so much color and energy dog day afternoon is a no-brainer for me i'll also include 12 angry men again based on a play in many ways i think it's the template for being able to have a movie set in one location um, your loyalties are shifting henry fonda's commanding the entire time lee j cobb is really good um 
Yeah, basically when you're trying to tell whether or not this guy's innocent or guilty and the way that Fonda tries to carry the room, it's really sharp and no surprise, directed by Sidney Lumet. And last one, I'll go with The Rear Window, one of Hitchcock's better movies. Um, obviously a story that's now been told as far as a peeping Tom and a guy who's, you know, getting off on seeing what's happening across the street but then ends up having uh, dastardly consequences. Rear Window is a classic movie, so I will include it as far as movies set in one location, in this case, an apartment building. But lots of really good choices here, Joe. How about you? All right, Adnan. You got to promise not to get mad at me, but <laughs> I've never seen Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh, God, I know. this has to get rectified. I know. I know. I'm going to watch it this weekend, but you have to watch the movie Blowout by Brian De Palma. I was and about John to say, Cole. you know what? Everybody's got a hole in their resume, and you're right. I have not seen Blowout, so you know what? That's fair. I, I accept it. I'm more impressed with your honesty. You could have just lied to me, Joe, but I appreciate your honesty. All right. Well, I'll put it on my honorable mentions list. I've, I've heard it's <laughs> awesome. Um, and then, But I will agree with you with both 12 Angry Men and Rear Window. Both of them phenomenal. Both of them classics. And then I will throw in this movie called Exam. It's this British psychological thriller where eight applicants for a job walk into a room, and they take an exam. And I won't spoil anything else, but it is very intense and scary. And then I'm going to put the movie Record. It's a Spanish movie uh, that all takes place in this warehouse where this news crew follows uh, shadowing this fire department. And it might be the best, spoiler alert, zombie movie I've ever seen in my life. Wow, that's awesome. And I love the fact you went off the grid there. So Exam, and what was the title of the second one you said? Record, R-E-C. Record, REC. I love it, man. Good choices here from Joe. We'll tweet these out. Uh, as always, you can tweet us, Cinephile Pod, C I N E P H I L E Pod, or you can tweet me individually, Adnan S. Furk. Let us know of your choice for the favorite movie set in one place. And as always, I retweeted my man Nick Durst. Let us know what you want the Mount Rushmore to be next week, because Joe and I come up with these. But obviously, if you've got a good option, give it to us. The Butter Binge. All right, now it's time for the bottom binge. I get a little nostalgic now, a little sentimental, because we only got three more weeks left here of, for my money, the greatest show of all time. But there is a Sopranos convention, which is coming to New Jersey at the end of the month. I have to get more details on that. I believe it's taking place in the Meadowlands, about a half an hour from my home. So I'll definitely have to get tickets for that and figure out a way. Maybe we, the bottom binge will continue with a live Q&A, perhaps, with some of the actors. But... For our purposes, it's season seven, episode one, or I could say season six, episode or part two, depending on how you want to look at it. But uh, I'm using as a resource the book from Matt Zoller Seitz and Alan Seppenwall. They're going to go with season seven, episode one. But Soprano Home Movies is a great episode. This is in many ways one which is, which, this could be nominated for best episodes set in one location. It primarily takes place um, at the beach house here where they're, they're doing a little getaway. And there's a few scenes that are really worth noting. Tony and Bobby sitting on a boat in the middle of a lake. They're talking about business and speculating what happens if you get whacked. As Bobby says, you probably don't even hear it when it happens, right? And later on, Bobby's telling me he's never actually killed somebody on the job. My pop never wanted it for me. Later on, Tony's kind of suggesting the fact that he could be a more reliable number two for him than that guilt-ridden junkie Christopher. Chris, by the way, only appears for a few seconds, so it's not really a big episode for him. Later on, as the guys write the scene, the most purely theatrical thing the series has done since Whitecaps, a wise guy riff on the man who came to dinner, ratchets the tension and discomfort until Tony is warbling a version of Under the Boardwalk, whose lyrics are about the sex acts Janet might have performed there. They're playing Monopoly, the two couples, and now it's getting a little bit filthy because the jokes he makes. And all of a sudden, Bobby thinks it's too much. Stop insulting my wife. I don't care if she's your sister. Don't say that. So he sucker punches his own boss. He hits Tony Soprano, leading to an ugly, clumsy brawl that's like a sad comic mirror of Ralphie's death. Later on, it's, as the guys write, a shocking upset akin to Buster Douglas knocking out Mike Tyson. It's Tony who winds up on the canvas at the end of the bout, although it's Bobby who then tries to run away, aware of the potentially fatal consequences of what he's done. Later on, Carmella even notices a Monopoly hotel has gotten stuck to Tony's bloody cheek. Talk about the details. Later on, though, Tony gets his revenge, and he does so in the smartest way. Carmelo may say he's not a vindictive man, but he knows exactly what he's doing. And so... A brother-in-law gets killed, but it's somebody else's. So while negotiating a deal with a Canadian crew, Tony offers to murder the troublesome ex-husband of one of their sisters, and now he insists that Bobby do it. This goes against Bobby Sr.'s wishes, against Bobby's own gentle nature, but Bobby's in a vulnerable position where he can't say no to the boss. The hit goes mostly as planned, but the victim reaches out, rips open Bobby's shirt as the second bullet is fired, exposing his broken heart for all of us to see. 
Later on, Bobby's talking to Tony. He says, you know, you're a young man. We both are. The world's still in front of us. But this is so smart of Tony Soprano. This is the way he gets back at Bobby. You beat me up in the fight. I'm going to poison your soul. You've never killed somebody before, huh? You think you're better than me? You think that makes you special? Well, watch this. I'm going to go have you murder this guy who probably shouldn't be murdered. I mean, he's just a brother-in-law who ends up being in the mix here because his ex-husband, and all of a sudden, boom, you're going to go to Canada and murder this guy. And you can see the impact on Bobby's face uh, when he goes back because, you know, he sparks the fight by singing a dirty version of the Drifter's song. But the closing scene is beautiful because you see Bobby's face. He's so haunted as he sees his wife and his kids. And the song is also by the Drifters. This magic moment, the beautiful song, it's matching the images, but not Bobby's feelings. And... There's also a scene, by the way, that is kind of a, a reminiscent of your really funny scene from Goodfellas when Tony gets mad at Janice when she's telling him how he's different. But I love the ending to the episode because, again, it just shows you can say what you want about Tony Soprano, but, God, the guy is smart, he's conniving, and he totally buries Bobby in this battle of wills by, like I said, poisoning the guy's soul. Uh, next episode is Stage 5. Really good episode here because a lot gets done. you got Carmelo's confrontation with Tony. Uh, inferring that Tony slept with Adriana. You get Silvio's survival of a mob hit, which apparently was instigated by Doc Santoro and Jerry the Herdu Torciano. By the way, the Torciano hit presented in a manner evoking Bacala's. You probably don't even hear it when it happens, theorizing from Soprano home movies. Silvio is out dining with the Herdu and two women when the sound drops out, replaced by a high-pitched whine, followed by blood spraying all over Silvio's face. It takes another moment for him to hear the sound of the gunshot, realize Jerry's been taken out right in front of him. Even a witness like Silvio doesn't hear it exactly when it happens. That's important to remember for the final episode. Later on, you got Johnny Sack and his inevitable death. You know, he keeps smoking those coffin nails right up until the end. So stubbornly, even his wife, Ginny, busts out a pack at Johnny's bedside after hearing him call out for his mother. It's as if she thinks the promise of one more puff might inspire John to turn on his heel, walk away from the light. But this is a melancholy to depressive installment of The Sopranos. A beautiful send-off as the guys write for Vince Curatolo, who went from masonry contractor to one of the most indelible members of the whole cast. One superb scene in particular is the first family visit from the way Johnny gently breaks the news with an understated, I'm very, very sick, to the daggers he stares at that prison guard who keeps telling him to stop touching. <laughs> which also made me think, by the way, of Arista Development. Uh, later on, you've got Chris's movie actually being seen, and you've got the mob boss villain played by Daniel Baldwin. And you've got Cleaver himself played by Jonathan LaPaglia, whose older brother, Anthony, was actually once a candidate to play Tony Soprano when the show was in development. And later on, you've got J.T. Dolan attributing the Broad Broad Broderick Crawford character born yesterday to this. But really, Tony says, hang on a second. Christopher made a movie about me. It's this mob boss who apparently sleeps with the guy's girlfriend, and he's just a total irascible jerk. And so Tony's really miffed when he sees the movie. He's saying, I can't believe I put money into this thing. And Christopher basically made a movie making fun of me. And he's hurt by this. Another, I think, of note in this episode is a great Sidney Pollock. He plays Warren Feldman. An incarcerated oncologist convicted of killing his cheating wife, her aunt who just happened to be there, and a mailman with bad timing. At that point, I had to fully commit. Pollock, the director of They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Jeremiah Johnson, The Way We Were, Tootsie, and Out of Africa, began his career as an actor in the early days of live TV drama, continued acting in his own films and others. He would die a little over a year after Stage 5 aired, killed like Johnny Sack by cancer. Third episode, Remember When... Uh, Tony at one point says, remember when is the lowest form of conversation, which I always think about whenever I'm uh, reminiscing with friends. Remember when? Uh, this episode is about Tony just getting so tired of Polly. Nonstop glory days yammering at dinner with Beansy and the others. Uh, here you kind of get the sense that the Sopranos is getting to, to the point that you have to deal with the consequences. The fact that Tony's had Polly his whole life and meantime now realizes he can't stand the guy. Even there's an episode where he thinks about whacking Polly. It's a suspenseful sequence on a rented boat. A psychic return to Big Pussy's execution without the aid of a flashback, but is it plausible? Polly's a petty thug, not a novice meathead, even if he had been established as a diarrhea-mouthed dummy who dropped incriminating statements left and right, he surely would have been whacked by his own guys long ago, perhaps by Tony, who should have noticed this tendency earlier. Or maybe, like the state of his own physique, he's simply getting worse in his old age. Later on, you've got Junior in the hospital and you got carter chong ken lung who's behind the bars bacala losing his temper recounting the time his father dismissed a 96 score on a third grade spelling test because it wasn't a 100 you know here you see the sadness you see the sadness of what's happened to, to johnny sack as he dies and now you got um junior who's just this demented old man in a nursing home 
And this character, Carter Chong, who's bitter at the perceived betrayal of another father figure, and perhaps having read One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest one too many times, gives Junior a beatdown, leaving the official boss of New Jersey sitting in a wheelchair, cast on his arm a blank, depressed look on his face. It's really amazing to see that last shot as well when you see Dominic Cianese and what's happened to him as a character. I mean, he's, he's acting opposite thin air, basically his scene partner is a cat in one scene. You go, God, this guy is such a good actor. One last thought about Polly: When they look back to a picture of black and white photo of Polly in his 60s heyday, what we realize instantly is that Polly is trying to preserve that image all these decades later. He still pounds the dumbbells even though the skin sags around his muscles. He still wears the same hairdo even though the hair is gray and thin. He lives alone, has no real friends, is the least productive, least respected captain in the family, and he can't stop talking. The only difference is the amount of TV he watches. In the 60s, he didn't know who Barty Fife was. Well, today he cackles hysterically at a Three's Company rerun. Polly's just self-aware enough to know that Tony's displeased with him. He has a flashback to Pussy's oceanic murder as he and Tony cast off in their fishing boat, is terrified throughout the voyage, and later has a dream where he confronts Pussy the Rat to ask, when my time comes, tell me, will I stand up? We're almost coming to the end of the Bada Binge. Two more installments left as we have just six episodes to dissect. Once again, thanks as always to the guests. Shea Serrano was terrific. Thanks to my producer, Joe. And in the past, uh, thanks to James Andrew Miller. He was a great guest in the last Cinefile. If you haven't seen it, you should listen to it and go watch The Third Man. As always, I appreciate everybody listening and downloading. Spread the word with Apple Podcasts. Next week, I'll have a review of Parasite, the new South Korean film which is earning raves all over the place. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.